All right, we're going to continue our study. Pass it on. Those things. Ten essential truths. Ten areas of understanding, if you will, that we need to pass on to the next generation. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to deal with the subject of the fact that we live in a sin-fallen world. So let's stand as we open God's Word together. Deal with this question here, why creation groans? Last week we looked at creation. We've given a, a, a defense for the authority of Scripture now and a defense for creation, how we got here. And now we're striving to answer the question, why creation groans then? What's wrong with the world that we live in if there is a God who created it? And so Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we'll read the first seven verses, and then we'll look at several that follow that after uh, the first couple of points that we make this morning. And so it says that the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Father, we read this tragic story in Scripture. And Lord, we read it today with an understanding that you already had a plan in place for when this day took place. Lord, we have sang about that day when death was arrested, life began. So Lord, this morning, I pray that you would help us not only understand what it means to live in a sin-fallen world, but to understand what it means for us as the body of Christ to have the answers to that problem, to pass it on. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. We're dealing with a a subject this morning. It's a question that theologians and philosophers, both Christian and non-Christian, both Bible-believing and atheists, have all grappled with for centuries, millennia to be exact. Uh, Nobody is new with coming up with the observation of how can God be good and loving and all-powerful and still allow evil and suffering in the world? Some will... As Christians wonder and, and strive for answers for that question, others who are not Christians, we, we call this the question of theodicy. Uh, theodicy is the question of how can a good and loving God allow evil to take place in the world if he is all-powerful? Because we assume that if he is all-powerful, that he can do something about it, and that if he is all-loving, that he will do something about it. Just in the 21st century, 
we've been faced with things like uh, 9-11 here on our own soil in the United States in 2001. Uh, I remember back in 2004 when four Baptist missionaries who were trying to serve in Iraq, who were there to be a blessing to the people, were shot and killed in a hospital. We hear of so many words of children with dreadful diseases and sometimes the loss of a life of a dear child, as I even heard about this week. We hear of times of disaster. I remember getting a phone call when I was a youth minister of a mom and two children who were tragically killed in a car accident. We think of those devastating tragedies Getting a phone call also when I was a youth pastor that a toddler in our church whose aunt and uncle were in their teens and in my youth group and would bring this toddler nephew of theirs to church and I get a phone call that this toddler has died in a tragic drowning. And we say, God, if you are good and you are loving, why the things like that happen in the world? And to be honest with you, most atheists are too angry with God to be atheists. They're saying, really deep down inside, there is a God, and I'm mad at Him because He's allowed these things to happen. Because if there was not a God, there would be no definition of good, and if they would say, as an atheist, why, if there is a God, and He is all-powerful, and He's all-loving, Why would he allow bad things to happen in this world? Why would he allow bad things? And and my question to them is usually something like this. If there is no God, who says it was bad? If there's no God, who says it was wrong? If there's no God, who says it was evil? Because if there is no God, there's no definition of right and wrong and good and bad and evil. And so if there isn't a God, then the atheist has no right to complain. See, there is a he's God and we're not element to our argument here. That he put the system in place and our finite minds will find much of what he put into place a mystery. But don't allow the fact that much of what's going on is a mystery. Much of it is explained in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. We hit the ways and his ways and thoughts being higher than our ways and our thoughts. He also has revealed some things to us in his word. That's why we began with the word of God and its authenticity and why we believe that the Bible is trustworthy and a word from God. Because it's in this word that he reveals himself. Remember we said the atheist says there is no God. The agnostic asks the question, if there is a God, well how could we know him? And our answer is that if there is a God who wanted us to know him, he would reveal himself to us. He did that in his word and he gives us sufficient answers for the question of the day. And so he has revealed and explained many of the answers that we have Uh, answers to the questions that we have in his word and this question of the odyssey why does evil happen why do bad things happen are those questions are answered in his word and and see the problem is not ultimately with god the problem is with us so so the first question we're going to look at this morning is what is our problem rather than trying to say all right what's god's problem if god is so good and so loving and so powerful why do bad things happen in the world today Let's start by asking, what is our problem? See, our problem is 
that we were given a choice to sin, and we did. <laughs> we are a sin-fallen people. We are a sin-fallen race living in a sin-fallen world, and since Adam and Eve, we have been born with a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We were given a choice to sin, and we chose to sin. Remember the couple that were riding down the road back when uh, the, the, there were not, you know, captain chairs or whatever in every vehicle? There used to be sofa seats in the front of every truck. Remember that? Remember those days? Somebody might still have a truck here with kind of that sofa seat in front. I remember when we used to go to my grandparents' house that uh, the, the whole family except me uh, rode in the front. My mom, my dad, my brother, and sister all sat in the front of a pickup truck. There were no king cabs that you could find back then. And so all four of them are sitting in the front of the truck on the sofa seat. I was the oldest sibling, so I sat in the back of the truck. Yep, going down Highway 85. That was not against the law back then. That's how we got to where we were going. And so if you've never sat on a sofa seat or in the back of a pickup truck going down the interstate, you haven't lived, right? Um, There was a one couple that was in a truck like that. And uh, the girl was scooted all up under the guy who was driving so that the couple behind them looked up and it looked like kind of two heads driving the same vehicle. And the couple behind them, the lady kind of looked at her husband because they were also driving a truck on one of these sofa seats. And she looked at her husband and said, remember when we used to be like that? And he looked over at her and said, I haven't moved. Well, sometimes we look at God and say, God, what, what's wrong? What's the problem? God hasn't changed. God hasn't moved. The problem's with us. What's our problem? Is that we were given a choice to sin, and we did. And you might ask yourself as you look at Genesis 3, why were we given a choice? We are not God. We were created in his image so that we could relate, which gives us uh, the ability to have a, a, a rational thought process, ability to have a will and ability to make choices And the bottom line is that God created us to live in a relationship with him where we would glorify him, and there is no relationship if there is no choice. And so there's a a disobedience that takes place here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, remember last week we said chapter 2 is kind of a commentary on chapter 1. It zooms in on day 6, describes the creation. And in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. You do have a choice. There are consequences to your choice. As Adrian Rogers has said many times before, that we're free to choose, we're not free not to choose, and we're not free to choose the consequences of our choice. Throughout life, when sin raises its ugly head, when the devil brings temptation, we're always free to choose, we're never free not to choose, and we're never free to choose the consequences of our choice. He has determined those consequences. And so, Adam was given this word, Men, remember, he was given this word before Eve was created. He was to lead with the word. That's why under the redeemed household of faith in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. And it goes on to talk about how Christ washes the church in the word of God. He was to lead with the word of God, not by his own compulsions. Adam was given a word from God. 
Later on, Paul would tell Timothy that the woman was deceived and not the man. You say, wait a minute, the man took from the the tree and he ate also. Listen, that was an indictment against the man. The man rebelled. He had a word from God before he was created. And here he is in the garden eating from the tree. She gave to him and he ate also. So he willfully disobeyed. Eve was deceived. She was tricked. Adam wasn't tricked. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he failed to lead in the opportunity they had to protect and look out for his wife. And so that's why the fall is attributed to Adam because of his rebellion and his irresponsibility. So the devil, we get back to chapter 3, who seems to have fallen somewhere between chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, that period that we talked about last week. Many believe that Isaiah 14 is a description of Satan's fall, as he is referred to as Lucifer. And so we might be caused to stop here and say, wait a minute, he he mentions the devil in verse 1, we see the devil's work, we we see the devil as a fallen angel, we see the demons as one-third of the angels fallen, and we might think to ourselves, wait a minute, if the angels also have a choice, how do we know that none of the others are going to fall? Is this thing in trouble? We find a little bit of encouragement from 1 Timothy 5.21, which refers to the the angels as the elect angels, those that were not demons, those that were not fallen. So we believe that these angels, whether there was a free will or a choice at one time, at this point it seems that their eternity is sealed, that these angels were created to be forever in the presence of God or serving God, even as serving us in the world today on God's behalf. And so one-third the fallen angels headed up by the devil who is personified here as the serpent. The devil tries to get them to go around God's plan. And he does so by questioning. Remember how Adam was to lead? Adam had received a word from God. He was to lead with that word. Under the redemptive plan in Ephesians 5, he is to lead his wife with the word of God. He is to lead sacrificially and to commit himself to his wife and to his family willing to die for them if necessary, but he's to wash them with the Word of God. He's to lead according to the Word of God. Adam was to lead according to the Word of God. And this temptation in the garden comes, and the first thing it does is questions the Word of God. And that's why we have already dealt with the Bible and creation and and the source of authority, because the first thing the devil will do in your life and in my life is try to get us to doubt what God has said. So in verse 1, he says to Eve... Second part of this verse, did God really say you can eat from any tree in the garden? Now, he's trying to trick her a little bit here, but he's trying to get her to question what God has said. And he will give credence to some of what God has said and try to twist some of what God has said. And that's the way the enemy also works, try to get you to believe part of it, but not all of it. Half-truth is a whole lie. And then in verse 4, he blatantly lies. He says, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, he was partially correct here in that there would be an awareness of their conscience that they had never known before. And that their eyes would be opened, they would know good and evil. But the devil himself is called the father of lies, for from the beginning at this point, he steps in and he says, you will not die. 
a blatant lie that he tells Eve to try to reassure her that her sin would be okay. And so he questions the word of God. He appeals to her human nature in verse 6 and also to the nature of Adam. The human nature, not the sinful in nature. We'll talk about that in a moment. But at this point, it's, it's merely their human nature, the fact that they were not God and they had the ability to have human desires. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It's the lust of the flesh. Delightful to look at. That's the lust of the eyes. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That's the pride of life. We saw that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 in our previous series. That the, the, all that is of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those natural things that the human body will desire even in a non-falling condition. Remember, this is preceding the fall. He appealed to their fleshly, their human desires. That's how he tempted Jesus. By the way, Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus was the perfect son of God. He, he was the seed of a woman, as we'll see in a moment from Genesis 3.15. But he was the virgin-born son of God. He did not have Adam's seed within him. He was born, he was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, so that he would have a sinless nature. But even he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin, the Bible says. And when he was in the wilderness, the devil came to him with three temptations. And you can trace those same three temptations back to this moment. It was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus answered every one of those temptations with these words, It is written, because the enemy tries to question the Word of God, and no one knew the Word of God better than the author of the Word itself, the one who was the living Word, Jesus Christ, quoted the Word back to him and overcame him. Now, Adam, who is with her, keep in mind, men, again, he's being passive, he's irresponsible. It's not like the devil found Eve when Adam was nowhere to be found. He came to her when Adam was right there. Adam's the one who had received the word. He was to lead with the word of God. And he's being passive, he's being irresponsible, and he lives for the moment, and he takes of the fruit, and he eats also, thus cursing the human race and planet Earth itself as we now live in what is called a sin-fallen world. A sin-fallen world. And so when we're asking the question, If there is a good and loving God, when did he create evil? He did not create evil, but he did create a choice. And to ask the question, why and when did God create evil? When did God, it's kind of like asking the question, and by the way, the scripture says that God is not the author of evil. It says that he's not even the source of temptation. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So he's not the author of evil or source of temptation, but asking when did he create evil because it couldn't exist without his permission, right? And so asking when he created is kind of like asking when did God create darkness? Go back and look at the creative order, those six days in Genesis that we looked at last week, and answer the question, when did God create darkness? And you would say, I don't remember that day. Darkness existed on the face of the deep. Darkness became something we had an understanding of. Darkness is merely a concept of the absence of light. 
So the moment that God said, let there be light, meant that there was something that was not light, and that which was not light is called darkness. And so you don't have to create darkness. And tonight, when everybody is gone from this building and we walk out those doors, we don't have to say, did anybody remember to turn on the darkness before we left? The darkness is merely the absence of light. So we ask, did anybody turn off the lights? And that's the way it is with evil in the world today. The evil that we see is the absence of good, the absence of God, the absence of being obedient to his precepts and his standards for life and all that he created that he said was good when it's not according to his created order, his purposes, and his glory, then what exists without that light is merely darkness, is sin, and evil in the world. We call it depravity. Living in a sinful and depraved world. It's the absence of good. And we don't shun it so much anymore because we become accustomed to darkness. We become accustomed to the evils of this world. And while there are some things we would say, oh, that is atrocious, that is evil, that is despicable, there are other things that we tolerate even in our own life because we have a choice. And we seek to fulfill those human desires with our own means rather than God's creative means of all the other trees in the garden they could have eaten from and been fully satisfied with the walk with God that they could have enjoyed and been completely satisfied, they chose that which God had forbidden, thus revealing what happens when we choose sin. To today where we don't even use the word sin, we don't want to call things sin. When uh, Coach Ert Russell, who was a great defensive coordinator for University of Georgia, went to Georgia Southern, Evidently, there was an issue with some student athletes getting involved in drugs, some of his football players, that he wanted to make a point. And the story is told that he brought in, he had some guys bring in a sack with a rattlesnake in it. Now, I don't know if this snake had been defanged or anything. I don't know the whole story. But, but the story is told that he had some guys bring in a sack, and on a table, they dumped out a rattlesnake and he said the, the meeting room where all the players were was it cleared. Those players got out of that room as fast as they possibly could. And later on, after they took care of the snake, and Coach Russell had made his point, and they came back in for the meeting. He said, fellas, cocaine, other drugs, will kill you as quick as that snake will, and you won't run from that. You know, there are things in our lives today that we don't run from anymore. The, the lust that we don't flee anymore. And they bring death and destruction. They brought it to the planet Earth and they'll bring it to my life and to your life. The wages of sin is still death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. Emotional death. Sin doesn't scare us like it used to. What is our problem? We're given the choice to sin and we are sinners today by nature because we're children of Adam, and by choice we choose to sin because we have that sin nature today. But even in Adam's unfallen condition, his human desires, he chose to sin. So what's our predicament? Let's move from the problem to the predicament. What's the world like today? What's the consequence? If there's a consequence to sinful choices, what's the consequence? Well, it's a condition that we live in. 
We live in a, the condition in this body and in this world of suffering. The, the, the earth itself is suffering today. The world we live in is a suffering world because it is a world that by and large has rejected God and is in need of redemption. There's a contrast in verse 7 to chapter 2 and verse 25. Look at verse 7 again this morning. It says, The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves. There's a new consciousness. There's a new awareness of their vulnerabilities to sin and to evil and to their surroundings that they had never experienced before. Because in verse 25, it says the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. Those vulnerabilities were not in place because the earth was not cursed, and they did not live in a sin-cursed body, but now they do. And as a result of that, their shame and their nakedness, their vulnerabilities are now exposed. They have guilt, and they have a guilty conscience, and they find themselves as, as a couple here hiding from God, aware of those vulnerabilities and of that shame. And so separation and and the blame game of the human race begins. Look at verse 8 as we pick up where the story is left off from what we read a moment ago. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves. We have to assume that they had once enjoyed a walk with God in the garden, but here they hide themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? By the way, again, men, he's holding the man responsible here. That's important. Understand some of the things that we see Christ providing as the second Adam. But he says, Where are you? It's not that God all of a sudden lost his omniscience. Wait a minute, is this working? We're hiding from God and you can't find us? Like one of your kids hiding in a house so they can jump out of a cabinet or from behind a door somewhere and scare you? Is, is Adam hiding and God's like, man, where did he go? God is not at a loss here. Adam is. And God in his questioning is revealing something to Adam about himself. Where are you at, Adam? So Adam has to get honest with himself as we all should. And he said, I heard you in the garden, verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God didn't lose his omniscience. He's revealing the lostness of Adam to himself. Socrates wasn't the first one that taught by asking questions. God was. Then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, See, already, the blame game. It's her fault. She did it. That woman you gave me, she, she, she gave me to eat some fruit. Lord, you know I couldn't resist from, from the tree, so I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman has learned from her husband already how to play the blame game. It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. There is some responsibility laid at the foot of the serpent here in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. We'll come back to the hostility between God and the devil 
in just a moment. We see the nature of man and the, the world is broken. Human nature, mother nature, if that's what you want to use to refer to this planet Earth as, is now a broken nature, a sinful in nature. So in verse 16, he speaks of the anguish that the wife will go through even in her desire for her husband, her childbearing, her not wanting to, to settle for things as they are in the world. And he said to Adam, because you have listened to your wife's voice and eaten from the tree which I commanded you do not eat from, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. He speaks of the sinfulness of not only Adam and Eve, but of the curse and its effect on planet Earth. We live in a sin-fallen world. We live by blood, sweat, and tears today. In Job chapter 14 and verse 1, there's the conclusion by Job that life is short and full of trouble. We saw God correcting Job last week, but Job is saying life is short and it's full of trouble. That's all that life is. Trouble, death, heartache, and evil. And all of this was sovereignly allowed by God. Remember, even in the life of Job, the devil had to get permission before he brought these tests upon Job. It's allowed by God in the world today as a direct or indirect consequence to sin and evil. Direct or indirect. Some of the evils that you endure, some of the catastrophes that you endure Some of the problems that you face day in and day out are the consequence of your own sin in your own life, my own sin in my own life. We can point to those sins and we can say, this is a sin that caused this problem in my life. Other times it's the indirect result of the fact that we are a victim of simply living in a sin-fallen world and sometimes we're the victim of other people's sins. It's because we live in an earth. We live on an earth. We live in a planet that is cursed. Romans chapter 8 puts it this way. Romans 8, verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into glorious freedom of God's children. He's looking forward to this day that the earth is restored. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pains until now. So even the earth groans and the earth cries out because this is a sin-fallen world. Others suffer because of our sins. We can't say that our sin doesn't affect others any more than Adam could have said that and it affected the whole human race. So whether you're talking about natural disasters, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, floods, or whether you're talking about those catastrophic events that are a result of sinful choices like terrorism, war, murder, drunk driving, abused children, 
There is utter depravity. I heard someone make the statement that even the Prime Minister of Great Britain said concerning the terrorist attack there this past week in London that it was an act of utter depravity. We live in a depraved world where acts of depravity happen. So sometimes it's that we live in a sinful and cursed world, an earth that is groaning to be redeemed one day, and we are sometimes victims of the catastrophes that happen on planet earth. At other times, it's the direct result of somebody's sin, and then at other times, it's the direct result of even our own sin. And we try to point our finger at the Creator as if the Creator Himself was flawed. After 9-11 happened, I didn't hear anybody say, if those planes had been better constructed they would not have fallen apart so easily. If those buildings, if those buildings had been better built, then they would not have fallen. Maybe there was some, some blame to be cast there, but most of the blame went to the fact that there were perpetrators who did an act of evil in the world. And so we don't look at the fact that there are consequences to evil in the world and consequences to living in a sin-fallen world and blame the Creator. We're merely His creation. He is God and we're not. His creation is not even God, so that means it was vulnerable from the beginning. As beautiful and as perfect as it was, it was vulnerable because it was not God, because the creation can't be God, only the Creator can be God. So we live in a sin-fallen world that is vulnerable today. And we're made vulnerable because we're not God. And the bottom line is, stuff happens because of that directly or indirectly, because we live in a sin-fallen world. Still, we might wonder, well, why don't God do something about it? Why doesn't God do something about it? If God is all-loving and God is good and God is gracious and He is all-powerful, then why doesn't He do something about it? And the answer to that is, He did. He has done something about it. What is God's provision? His provision has always been, still is, will always be that there is a Christ who saves. He gave us a Christ to save, and he prophesies concerning that Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. People have asked me many times, well, pastor, if we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, what about people of the Old Testament? How are they saved? And I can argue from the book of Hebrews that they were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, looking forward to those things we look back on. Well, how did they have a message to look forward? He had not come yet. It was every prophecy going all the way back to chapter 3 in verse 15. Some call this the proto-euangelion. It's just a Greek way of saying the first gospel, the first mention of Christ. And so God here, in the presence of Adam and Eve, cursing the enemy, says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will strike. Who will strike? The seed of a woman. What's the seed of a woman? Biologically, that didn't make sense. It speaks of the virgin birth, the fact that Messiah will crush the head of the serpent. You will bruise his heel. You will inflict some pain on the Christ. You will inflict some pain on the virgin-born Messiah one day, but he will crush your head. He will totally defeat you once and for all. This was the first gospel, and it reveals God's provision 
And it's replacing man's effort. When you get down to verse 21, we see that the fig leaves were not enough. What man could put together was not enough. But God shed the blood of this animal. And for the first time, Adam and Eve see bloodshed. They see that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And from that moment, throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, every sacrifice would look forward to one day when there would be a be-all, end-all to all sacrifice when Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, would shed His blood for you and for me. God did do something about our sin. He covered us with the blood of Jesus Christ when we by faith receive His provision. There is a Christ to save, prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So when we read passages like 1 Peter 1.20 and Revelation 13 and verse 8, we're reminded that this was always God's plan because Christ was the Lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. It was always God's plan. God in His omnipotence was also an omniscient God who knew all things and said, if I give him a nature, anything less than God, if he has a human nature, not even a sin-fallen nature, but if he has a human nature without being divine like Christ, then he will ultimately choose to sin. What am I, if he has a choice, and I want him to have a relationship with me, so it must be a choice. God did not make us mechanical robots and force us to live in relationship with him. But if he has a choice and he chooses to sin, what will be the provision? Christ, God the Son, was made that provision willingly, Philippians chapter 2, laying down his life for the sins of the world. That was God's eternal plan from the very moment of creation. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So cynics mock the question when Christians say, Jesus is the answer. They will say, well, that's great. But what's the question? What is the answer to And we need to be able to answer what the answer is about. We need to be able to answer with questions of what we're answering, if that makes sense. Let me explain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's provision for our lostness, our lusts, and our longings. All of those things that we see now magnified because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Our lostness, the fact that they were expelled from the garden, the fact that we are born now separated from God. The Bible says that we're children of the devil. Everyone is God's creation, but we become a child of God when we by faith put our trust in Jesus Christ and pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus is the answer for our lostness. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's the answer for our lust. Galatians chapter 5, 16, if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So Jesus comes to live inside of me and he becomes my greatest desire when i get to a place in life this past monday night we had a a meeting with uh some pastors and some some church members who wanted to know more about our christian learning center the bible class the high school bible class hopefully everyone here is aware that a high school bible class students from madison county high school come the last period of the day here to trinity and get elective credit for taking a bible class on our campus taught the way we would like to have it taught It's a wonderful thing, wonderful class. And Mark, who teaches the class, was saying that he wants to see these students get to a place in life where they're saying, Jesus is what I want more than anything else. So anything that my lust may pursue of this world, I would see that Jesus is better. And that his plan is better. And that I would desire him more. That's what true 
faith and true worship is all about. Now, trusting the Word of God, not rejecting the Word of God. And then our longings. John 10, 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We live in a sin-fallen world where we want to know that we can be satisfied with life again. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, like the woman at the well learned in John chapter 4, you can be fully satisfied because it comes that well of living water welling up into eternal life. And there's satisfaction, even this side of heaven, with all the suffering that we endure in this life, we still live with a joy unspeakable and full of glory that the skeptic and the cynic says, I don't get that. How do you find so much joy? It's because of Christ in me, the gospel. There's a longing for fairness. We want to know that it's, see, we we see these things. We see the death of a young person and say, that's not fair. We see someone who is righteous suffering for the cause of Christ, and we say, that's not fair. If there is a God, why does this happen? And in the gospel, we know that there is coming a day where God makes all things fair. And God makes all things right. In fact, better than that, he gives us grace. We're really not asking for what's fair. We really want the advantage, right? We really want something better than what's fair. We want something better than what we deserve. We want grace. That's found in the gospel. Our longings include eternity. God has put it within the heart of man to desire eternity, Ecclesiastes says. He's put eternity in our hearts. We want to live forever. The gospel tells us how we can. And it's in this promise of a Christ that we now have purpose. He says to Adam and Eve, I'm not finished with you yet. You've got a purpose, you've got a plan. You're going to be restored. You're going to be redeemed. Things are going to be in place. Oh, it's going to be a sin-fallen world. But because of the Messiah, because of a Christ that you're looking forward to and that the church will look back on, you will once again find purpose. You will be restored to your purpose of glorifying God and making Him known to this world. So a lot of things that we call tragedy aren't really tragedy. A lot of things that make us sometimes angry, if we think about the gospel's impact on those things, we're not so angry anymore. What is it that has you saying, if, if there is a God, then why? Why is this happening? And understand the impact on the gospel to that question. I want to ask Jeff to come as we begin to prepare our hearts for responding to his Spirit's work in our own lives watched a movie with my daughter my wife and one of my daughter's friends it's a movie I'm not ashamed how many of you have seen the movie I'm not ashamed the Rachel Scott story if you haven't seen it I encourage you to get that movie watch that movie but in the movie I'm not ashamed it's a young lady the Columbine high school student I remember because I was a youth pastor during those days at Columbine. But there's a young lady, her name's Rachel Scott. And in the movie, and I'm glad the movie was real about this, but in the movie, this young lady is really grappling with this whole thing about God. Is she going to live for him or is she not? Is he real or is he not? And finally she comes to a place where she says, all right, I'm tired of the party scene, I'm tired of the world, I'm tired of everything 
this sin-fallen world has to offer me. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand for him. I'm going to live his way. And it seems that no sooner had she made that decision to publicly stand for Christ, as soon as she began to do that, these guys, some of you remember the day. Some of you remember where you were. I was actually visiting North Brunswick High School when these shootings happened. Three time zones away, but it was eerie to be on a campus, a high school campus when this happened. These young men walk on a campus and they just start killing people. Another strong believer by the name of Cassie Bernal lost her life that day. Michael W. Smith wrote a song in her honor. This is your time. Rachel Scott was asked before she was shot, you still believe in God? And she said, you know I do. She was shot, killed, lost her life. And we say, that's a tragedy. What a tragedy. How could a loving God, here's someone who gave their life to him. Or how could those Missionaries in Iraq lose their lives if God is so loving. These are people serving him. They should be rewarded for that. And I'm telling you, the gospel says they were rewarded for that. See, there's a greater tragedy than all of that. See, I think about this when I think about my own children, my own life. There's a tragedy that when they stand before God one day, that they will have lived a long life and I will not have passed these things on to them. That they will have been successful in the world's eyes. Their bank account will be okay. They will be making a comfortable living somewhere. But they will not have stood for a righteous cause. That will be a tragedy. And they're able to say, God, I got that raise that I was trying to get. Do I get a well done, good and faithful servant from you? God, I, I achieved the popularity position that I wanted. Do I, do I receive the well done from you? God, look at my Little League trophies. Look at my trophy case. Or nowadays it's rings. Look at my ring, God. Aren't you proud? And they laid up so many treasures on earth, and God in his word was saying, lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt where the thieves can't come in and steal it doesn't take thieves by the way you've heard the story but when Kent went off to college we renovated his room he goes off to college and every FFA award every baseball trophy every academic achievement certificate comes off the walls and in boxes and sister takes over his room and he's learned a lesson the things of this world don't last long. The trophies of this world will not last long. But what's done for the Lord Jesus Christ is storing up an eternal weight of glory and no suffering, no untimely death, no catastrophe in this life can ever take that away from you. Those are the forever things. Are we passing that on? In a sinful and sin-cursed world, when people are asking why do bad things happen to good people, are we answering with the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, God made provision, and you've got something better to live for than what this world has to offer anyway. This world's not my home. God has redeemed us from the curse of sin and placed us in the kingdom of His light and His love. 
And as long as he leaves us on this earth, it's not how many years we have. You've heard it before. It's not how many years are in our life, but it's how much life is in our years. It's how we're living for him that makes all the difference. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for redemption. We thank you for the gospel. That though we live in a sin-fallen world, our Lord split time and eternity to make all the difference in the world. And Jesus, when the world asks us, why doesn't God do something, help us to respond. He did. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.